Okay, well, welcome to our uh, second of our two-part series on the Virgin Mary and the prayer book. Um, today, the actual inclusion in the prayer book is going to be a little bit um, different in that in that we mostly talked about all the prayer book content last week, but this is going to be kind of answering some um, or addressing some common issues or um, controversies that uh, may, may arise from folks from other um, traditions. Now, first of all, I did want to issue a correction from last week. One of the uh, folks that was catching us on the YouTube channel uh, did a little bit of uh, digging around and, and, and corrected something I had said in passing regarding the holy days of obligation and kind of the numbers for Mary versus the numbers for Jesus. And what and so again, just kind of as a review, in, in Roman Catholic doctrine, holy days of obligations are, are days when you must go to church. Um, otherwise, to, to not do so is a mortal sin. And, um, you know, if, if, you, if you do not, you need to go to confession because your soul is in peril kind of stuff. And every Sunday in, in, is considered a holy day of obligation in the Roman Catholic tradition, but they also have various midweek solemnities. And so that's the first area of correction um, or clarification more likely is that the, the, the question was really more about those midweek solemnities um, rather than feast days in general. Um, current Roman Catholic um, canons have 10 solemnities, 10 midweek holy days of obligation. Three of those are for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Four of them are for Jesus. However, of those four, and so those four for Jesus are Christmas Day, the Feast of the Epiphany, the, the Ascension, and the Feast of Corpus Christi. Um, you know, the Feast of the, uh, we're, we're celebrating Christ's presence in the sacrament. Um, of those four, depending on which jurisdiction you're in, up to three of them can be transferred to the Sunday, though. Uh, so, so the only one that never gets transferred is Christmas Day. The other ones may be, depending on your jurisdiction, moved to the Sunday that follows them in terms of the holy, in terms of the obligation, which kind of effectively nullifies them as a solemnity, since every Sunday is a holy day of obligation. The three Marian feasts that are holy days of obligation, which are the Assumption, uh, the Immaculate Conception, and then on January 1st, the uh, Feast of Mary, Mother of God, those ones cannot be moved um, in any jurisdiction. And the other interesting thing about this is that um, that January 1st feast, uh, if, if you have your prayer book, you may remember that we do have a feast day on January 1st, and it's the Feast of the Circumcision of Our Lord. So it's a, it's a feast of something that happens to Jesus, but in the 1960s, um, the Roman Catholic Church changed that into a Marian feast. I'm sure they're celebrating the same event, but um, I do find that a little, little interesting. So technically, um, what I had been kind of repeating from some Catholic radio chatter was incorrect. Um, the the, the uh, solemnities for Jesus do outnumber those for Mary. However, three of the four solemnities for Jesus can be moved depending on your jurisdiction to the Sunday. And as I was reflecting, that was actually the issue that they were talking about on that, that radio program in, in question is they were saying, okay, we never transfer Mary feasts, but we do transfer Jesus feasts. So what's up with that? So um, anyway, that, that's a correction from last week. Don't wanna belabor that any more than we already are. 
So um, when it comes to uh, the, the Blessed Virgin Mary, there's really two main issues that folks from a Protestant background are going to, to have. And then there's um, a couple of issues that folks from an, an Orthodox or a Catholic background are going to have. And so we're just going to kind of take these in no particular order, except for that's just how I was assembling them as I was putting together my notes. The first of these is this issue of whether or not the Virgin Mary is, um, as it's sometimes called, ever virgin. If she remained a virgin um, throughout the rest of her life, or if it was only up until after she gives birth to Jesus. My uh, Christmas Star Wars mug there. Um, <laughs> all of my all of my mugs that um, are not just generic mugs are Star Wars mugs. It just happened that they're all gifts too. I didn't buy any of them, which is beautiful. Okay, so um, that's the big. That's one of the big questions: is was Mary? Did Mary remain a virgin? Was she a perpetual virgin? Now, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are typically going to say, but of course. Protestants are typically going to say, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of these really boil down to certain assumptions that we're going into with this um, that, that probably haven't really been thought about a lot. So um, we don't really see a lot of discussion about this until around the second century. You, do, you, don't, you don't really see any writings in the fathers that just discuss this at all until the second century. And it seems that it begins to get traction in the church um, with the rise of monasticism. So there's kind of, you know, and, and within monasticism, um, people that are monks traditionally in pretty much every tradition that has, has monks, except for some kind of modern, you know, neo-urban monasticism kind of movements. Um, if you are a monk, you are a celibate. That's part of the, 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 the monastic vows. So we do start to see um, among the church fathers, as monasticism arises, there is this discussion about, um, about Mary being a perpetual virgin, basically kind of being a proto-monk in that sort of way. But that's not a universal position in the fathers. Um, Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian um, and a few other folks do think that, um, that Mary and Joseph had other children. Other ones, such as um, St. Jerome, Eusebius the historian, um, and uh, certain, certain other ones did believe that Mary's, or that, that Jesus' Um, brothers and sisters that are mentioned were not actual blood brothers and sisters. So let's trace kind of how that works. And we're going to use the, um, in our prayer book, the Feast of St. James as the main case study for this. So when we're looking at the scriptures, at the Gospels and the, and the New Testament, we see that there are at least two different people named James, at least two different people. We have James, the son of Zebedee, who is St. John's brother. And then we have James, the son of Alphaeus, who's sometimes called James the Less. So James the Greater and James the Less. The question comes then, there's another figure that is sometimes called James the Just or James the brother of the Lord. The question is, is that James the same James as James the Less? 
we see much disagreement among the fathers about this, about the identity of, you know, who, who, who James the Less was with respect to, to James the Just, who James the son of Alphaeus versus James the kinsman of the Lord. In our prayer book, what's very interesting is on the Feast of St. James, the epistle is from, the, it's the opening chapters of the epistle of James. But the gospel is a, is, a, is a story about James, the son of Alphaeus, James the Less. So kind of drawing from most likely medieval um, patterns, the prayer book does seem to assume that James, the brother of the Lord, the author of the epistle, is the same person as James the Less, um, James, the son of Alphaeus, the apostle. A lot of Protestants, uh, kind of the default Protestant position is, is against that. The default Protestant position is that they're different characters. Um, but again, there, this, is, this is not something there's widespread agreement on among that second and third generation of church fathers. So um, the church historian Eusebius, he quotes... Um, another historian, uh, uh, an early second century historian, so someone that would have known the apostles uh, by the name of Hegesippus, or he Hegesippus, this is a, that's a hard name for me, um, that, that James the Less was the cousin of the Lord because um, Joseph's brother Cleopas had a wife named Mary. So Mary and so Mary of, of um, you know, that's another thing. We have several Marys in, in the scriptures. So one of them is, uh, is Mary Clopas kind of, kind of thing. So Mary, Cleopas, Alphaeus, they're the same person, according to these guys. St. Jerome also falls in this position. And so that James the Less is the son of Cleopas slash Alphaeus, same guy, who's who is the brother of Joseph of Saint Joseph Mary's you know the, the Blessed Virgin Mary's spouse um, alternatively his wife Mary may have been a very close kinswoman of the Blessed Virgin Mary and it may be that both is true you know in their positions but you know it's a little fuzzies which one they mean so that he is um, at the very least Jesus's adopted cousin via via Saint Joseph now we have a early third century um, kind of apocryphal gospel, the Proto-Evangelion of James, what it's often called, or the Gospel of James, which nobody considers canonical. Nobody has ever considered it canonical, but it's kind of considered one of these earliest, um, you know, often quoted, often read legends of, of the church kind of sort, sort of thing. And the, and the Gospel of James says that Joseph had um, was an older gentleman who had a previous wife who died, and then James and the other siblings mentioned in the Gospels are um, the are Joseph's children by that previous wife, but that Joseph agreed to become the Blessed Virgin Mary's protector and husband, even though they were never going to have their own children, they were never going to have marital relations, so that he could protect the one who'd been chosen to, to bring, bring the Lord, um, the Lord Jesus into the world. So that's, that's seems to be a slightly later tradition, 
but that's one that you often hear in Roman Catholic circles. Um, but you also have folks such as, again, Clement of Alexandria, Alexandria and Tertullian, who do believe that James and those other siblings are Mary and Joseph's natural children. We also see when we get up into the reformers that many of the reformers, including Luther, Calvin, our own Archbishop Cranmer, our own Bishop Jewell, um, our own Bishop Latimer, just by default accept that Mary was perpetually a virgin. And they usually default to the idea that James is, one, is the cousin, is, is, the, is the way they typically default to it. Others, such as the, um, the martyrologist uh, John Fox and, and many others reject that. Um, Fox's own reasoning for rejecting it is that um, it smacks too much of Roman superstition. <laughs> so, so he doesn't really so much have, um, you know, and again, we do have, we do have patristic support for rejecting that idea. So it's not like he's out of left field, but his main reason that he states in his book when he's discussing the early martyrs is that uh, he says, okay, this is, the, this is the tradition, but it's probably not true because that's too much like the superstition of the Romans. Um, so we, we, we see that it's not real clear. Um, we, we also see that the, the main issue behind this is that in Greek, the term for brothers is not always as precise as we use it here in English today. It can be any close kinsman, even though um, kind of the primary meaning is um, as an actual sibling. But I mean, we, we see this in the church all the time today. I mean, how, how many people call each other brother and sister in the church when they're not even blood related? I mean, that's, that's very common. Um, but, you know, for, for my part, just in terms of because of these controversies, I tend to refer to James the Just as the kinsman of the Lord rather than brother because um, I'm not 100% sure that he is the brother. And in fact, I personally am more apt to give the reformers the benefit of the doubt and those other major fathers the benefit of the doubt. Um, folks, you know, and, and the list of folks that, um, that do consider her to have remained a virgin are people that I tend to really respect. But I think we should make it very clear that, that for us, this is very much a pious belief, not at all a doctrine of the church. This is something that makes sense, but it doesn't have to be. So, so, so that's kind of the first big controversy, the first big question. You know, was she, was she ever virgin? Some folks said, yes, they have good reasons for it. Some folks said, no, they have good reasons for it. Um, you know, if I, had to make a, if I had to make a statement, I would say yes, because I'm deferring to um, some of our forebears who I really, really respect, while noting that they might that they might have been wrong. Okay, questions, comments on um, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Okay, one last thing on that, um, and if y'all have something, do do just kind of jump in. Um, you know, some folks will say that you know in 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 Judaism the idea of a non-consummated marriage or somebody remaining unmarried would have been highly irregular. Um, in today's Judaism, that is the case, but we have a lot of emphasis that in that less monolithic Judaism, really Judaisms 
of the first century that that wasn't always the case. I mean, we had whole groups like the Essenes who, who never married. I mean, they were, they were all kind of quasi-monastics. So um, don't, don't make the mistake of just assuming that because Judaism does something now that it was that way in Jesus' day. Oftentimes that's just not the case. Okay, the next one is, and this is one that Mary uh, had, had, had touched on last week and I told her to put a bookmark in it, was this issue of the Immaculate Conception, as that's the way that the Roman Catholics would put the phrase. Um, and really kind of more precisely what we ought to talk about the issue is, um, was the Blessed Virgin Mary in some way preserved from sin? So we do have in the collect for Christmas day, that reference to a pure virgin, but we also have article number 15 in the 39 articles of religion. Um, and I need, to, I need to look at that too. Um, you can find this on page, what is that? 605, it's titled of Christ alone without sin. Christ in the truth of our nature was made like unto us in all things, sin only except, from which he was clearly void, both in his flesh and in his spirit. He came to be the lamb without spot, who by sacrifice of himself once made, should take away the sins of the world. And sin, as St. John saith, was not in him. But all we the rest, although baptized and born again in Christ, yet offended many things. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And of course, there he's, um, he's quoting uh, from St. John's epistle. Um, so I find it kind of hard doctrinally not to include the Blessed Virgin Mary in the all we the rest, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And let's kind of spell out the way this was approached historically. So we've got really two approaches to this. The um, Position that we have today in the Eastern Orthodox, and you find very prominent among the church fathers, was that Mary was subject to original sin, but not, but not actual sin. So she, she didn't commit any willful sins, though she still had the stain, the stain of sin. That by God's grace, she was, pre, she, she was able to not commit any willful sins. Now the Eastern Orthodox wouldn't use the term original and actual sin, that's really a Western categories, but it's basically the same concept. We, we do find this was a very popular view among the fathers, it was by no means universal. And we find that of all people, Martin Luther did believe this, of all people. Um, we also see among some of the early post-Reformation English theologians, um, although none of the major figures like Cranmer or Jewell or any of those, um, that we do see that this is something that's alluded to at times in their writings, this, this idea. And there's one hymn, I don't remember which one it is. I, I, I read about this in um, another one of those great articles by Laudable Practice. I sent you all a couple of them. I've got a couple more I'll send and that's pretty much the end I'll do for that. But um, where... The, uh, the hymn writer basically refers to this as kind of something that we guess. So that's kind of interesting. And we, 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 we don't see that by all, by all means a majority opinion among the English reformers, but we do see it was one that Luther held, a lot of the fathers did, and this is the typical position of the Eastern Orthodox today. The Roman Catholic position is as of their, as of defining the, do, the, 
the um, doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is that Mary was both kept from original sin and actual sin, that when she was born, she was without sin. Now, they would say the way this works is that the grace of Christ applied to her retroactively, so the cross took care of her before it happened, basically. And so it wasn't by her doing, but it was what God did miraculously so that, so that Jesus would be born um, of someone who's, who was pure. Um, that's a, frankly, that's a very late position. Um, I, I couldn't tell you how late. I didn't do enough research to do that. I, I, and I, I was remiss in that, but it was a relatively late position and um, it, it wasn't made dogma in the Roman Catholic Church until the 19th century. And at the time, we see, especially in the Anglican world, e even some of the Tractarians, folks like John Henry Newman um, and, and his, his, his other folks, um, were very much opposed to this. You know, Newman, Newman just thought it was too innovative. Um, you know, he, he, I don't think he lived to see it enacted into dogma, I don't think. Um, but I know the, some of the other folks like Pusey, they basically, the thing they really lamented was, okay, this is an innovation, doctrinally speaking, um, you know, as, as a dogma, it's very much an innovation and it will destroy any attempts at church, at reunification of the church, because you're never going to get any of the Protestants to sign on to that, nor the East. And so, you know, the Roman Catholic church is kind of cutting themselves off with that dogma from future uh, reunification is what, is what some of the Tractarians were, were lamenting at the time. Sort of like when um, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century, when led by the Episcopal church, certain Anglican jurisdictions began to ordain women to the priesthood. Um, that was the same lament the Orthodox had. We were in the middle of talks towards potential reunification. And once that innovation on the on the doctrine of holy orders was done, um, the Orthodox said, "Okay, you know, you've destroyed any hopes at reunification at this point." Um, that's an issue for another day, and um, yeah, that's. But but it it very much reminded me of a similar sort of thing. Um, so that's that's the that's the Roman Catholic position. Um, I, I really have zero sympathy for that position. I, I really do. Um, with, all, with all due respect to our Roman Catholic friends um, and, and family, it, it, it's, it's, it's such a Johnny-come-lately idea, and it goes against so much of what we understand in terms of biblical theology, all in order to make an assumption that's not necessarily true. You know, if, if the Lord was able to come to a human body that is subject to, to death, you know, a human body that is subject to aging, surely he could have been born um, by very much the best of us without the best of us having to have been removed from original sin. That said, that said, I think it is important to note that ultimately that stain for all of, all of us who are in Christ will be removed. Um, so it's, it's, it's not like the concept of a human being without sin is, is, is against the scriptures, but, a, but I would say that without 
that stain of original sin um, within our fallen humanity, that's another issue, you know, with, with, with of course, the exception of our Lord Jesus, who, who, who did not. So that's, that's kind of my take on that. Um, and again, I, I think, I think in terms of uh, that, that position, it's sometimes called, um, I don't remember what it's called, but yeah, the position that, that she was able not to, to commit any willful sins. Um, I, I think that, that can hold water as a pious belief um, with, within our tradition but going to the to the Roman Catholic Immaculate Conception, I think, has a lot of problems theologically to it. Um, you know, because I mean, theoretically, you know, any of us could refrain from willful sin. We just don't. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I mean, I think part of the part of the curse of the fall is that that, that we don't. You know. And because of, I would say that because of original sin, we would still need the cross, even if we were able to. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's you know, for example, that's, that's, that's something that we see um, like with, in the Wesleyan tradition, you know, John Wesley, who was a, a, an Anglican priest until the day of his death, you know, he very much believed in the theoretical ability for us to refrain from sin. What often happens though, is that in order to make that claim, we start to lower the bar of sin. <laughs> we start to redefine sin. Um, I don't think that's at all what, you know, the fathers who, who would say that about Mary um, would surmise. Um, you know, I, I again, I, I could see that as holding, holding water as a pious belief because there is, it, it, may, it makes sense theologically that that could work. And there is, very old historical precedent for it, but it's never been a universal understanding of the church. So, so for it to be a dogma is again, very much a problem. So, so again, that's the same thing with the, with the perpetual virginity. Pious belief, sure. Um, dogma, definitely not. Okay, questions, comments on, on that one before we, before we move on. Okay, let's let's get to the next one then, and this is um, uh, what in in uh, typically in the West is called the Assumption of Mary. In the East, they call it the Dormition of Mary. And so this, the way this goes, is that Mary, uh, either before she died, she was taken bodily to heaven, and and um, yeah, basically taken bodily to heaven. Alternatively, um, when she died her body was taken to heaven where it was changed and she received so that she basically, she now has her glorified body um, again, because of her special role in salvation history. Um, we again see that this is a relatively old tradition, um, fourth, fifth century, we start to see it pretty widespread. We also see there is biblical precedent for both of these kinds of things. So we see um, Elijah is very clearly assumed into heaven at the end of his life, right? The chariots of fire and all that sort of thing. Um, most folks believe that in Genesis, when it talks about in, in, the, in the table of, um, ge of, of the, ge the genealogies, when it talks about Enoch and it says Enoch walked with God and was no more, 
that Enoch was assumed into heaven. So he was, he did not die. Enoch did not die. Elijah did not die, but they were taken bodily into heaven. And then we would assume not to, no pun intended. We would assume from there that um, they were given their glorified body at that point. As for the Dormition concept, uh, from what the New Testament, some New Testament allusions to, to Moses, and it's where this happens off the top of my head, I'm not, I'm, it's not coming into mind, but there's an allusion to kind of St. Michael and the devil fighting over Moses's body. And that's, that's an allusion to the widespread Jewish belief at the time that um, after he died, Moses's body was taken up into heaven. That's why nobody knows where he was buried to this day. So, you know, and, and the fact that the New Testament seems to validate that um, legend, belief, whatever, um, you know, lends credit to it, I would say. So we do have biblical precedent for both an assumption and a dormition um, of Mary, but we don't actually see that happening for her in the scriptures. So again, we have the basis for a pious belief. It's very old, it, it works biblically, that's fine. Um, again, what ends up happening in, in the Roman Catholic tradition is that they do either 19th or 20th century, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, dogmatize the assumption of Mary. Now, in the dogma, they don't make it clear whether it is what I'm calling here an assumption where she was taken up alive or whether she died and then her body was taken up. It's the, the, the dogma as defined by Roman Catholicism is, is ambiguous. So the, the Eastern Orthodox tend to have that more dormition approach and that would fit within the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic dogma. Our main problem with it is again, um, it's not something that can be proven by scripture. So to make it a dogma, that is a must believe issue is going beyond what we can do um, legitimately dogmatically. You know, remember article two, um, holy scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation so that whatever is not written therein or proved thereby cannot be counted as an article of faith. Um, you know, it's basically all must believe issues have to come from scripture or be proved by scripture. Hey, Father? Um, yeah. Father? Yeah. Um, when I was, when, uh, when Missy and I were stationed in Turkey, we went and saw the tomb of, of uh, Mary where she was buried. Um, so <laughs> what are, what are, what do you, uh, I guess that's just, is that a, Turkish fantasy or what? Um, um, there there's a, there's a couple of there. tombs of Mary. You know, we saw one in Israel too. <laughs> I mean, there's, so um, who knows? I mean, again, I, I, I don't, you know, Turkey, Turkey is Eastern Orthodox territory. So I, I would imagine that they would say that's the legitimate tomb Mm -hmm. And that, um, you know, her body was taken from the tomb. Um, I, I don't know what the, what, the, what the Roman Catholics would say to that, although I do know that we have a lot of Roman Catholic pilgrimages to Mary's home in Ephesus. Um, yeah. 
I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big thing. Actually, you end up, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkably ecumenical pilgrimage site uh, because Mary, Mary's important in, in Islam as well. So um, you do see um, Muslims, Orthodox, Catholics, Protestants, all visiting uh, Mary's home in Ephesus. So yeah, um, yeah so I, I, don't, I don't know what they would say, what they would say to that. Um, it seems the one in Israel I think that's also an Orthodox site, but I'm not sure. It might it might be, it might be Catholic, but if it is, it's more of a shrine than a tomb. Like it's a, there's a grave there, but they would say that it, it was never occupied, that sort of thing. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't really know how all that works. Um, and and all I would say again is that that's something that we could have. You know, you could say yes, you could say no, and that's legitimate either way. I would say as a pious belief. The real problem comes dogmatizing it. Yeah. Uh, the I, way, I, the, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I just know that uh, Missy and I and a couple of our friends spent a long day going to Ephesus to see the tomb. And uh, there were a lot of people there, a lot of people yeah. there. Yeah. It wasn't just, and, uh, you know, I knew at that time that, that she had um, spent some time in Ephesus. So I guess. I just automatically assumed that uh, she was there. Yeah, and that's one of and that's one of the things. That's one of the reasons why I bring these up is because depending on your background, some of these may just be assumptions that you never really thought about. Um, you know, I never thought about the issue of of there being two or three Jameses. I just assumed, <laughs> you know, despite my background, I, that's just what I assumed from reading the text. Um, you know, for example. And, 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 to, and to, to their, you know, as far as the Eastern Orthodox are concerned, it is a universal belief in the Dormition that she was taken to heaven after she died. Um, but they do not consider it a dogma of the church because, and here's the reason why, they would say everybody believes it. It's something you ought to believe. Um, if you don't believe it, there's probably something wrong with your theology. But, <laughs> but um, it's, not, it's not an essential part of the proclamation of the gospel. It's not part of the kerygma of the gospel, therefore it's not dogma. And I would say, you know, I, I, I probably wouldn't be as insistent upon it as they are, but I would say that's, that's a position I can respect and, and I could at least conditionally agree with. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with the concept of her being assumed into heaven or um, whether before or after her death, I don't have a problem right. with that at all. Um, I have a problem with saying that if you don't believe it, your soul's in peril. <laughs> That's yeah. where I have a problem. My soul's in peril for a lot of other things. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, questions, comments on that, on, on that particular issue, or I should say further questions or comments on that. Thank you very much, Dial. That, that's, I hope to get to Ephesus whenever we do our, um, our next uh, kind of archdeaconry invited Greek Greece trip. I hope to get to Ephesus. Okay, well, let's move on to the fourth, um, the fourth controversy, the fourth, and that's um, Pam kind of alluded to it last week when she talked about, um, you know, what, what do you do when, when Catholic friends say, you ask you to go say, hey, a, say a Hail Mary for me. And, um, you know, that's that sort of thing. And I, 
I kind of had a had had a two part response. One was the more gracious one. One was the more snarky one, um, depending on the context. Um, but this is the question of: Is it appropriate to to pray to Mary and the saints? So there's a few things we need to understand um, as we look at this question. Um, one is that we do have in um, definitely in patristic theology, a lot of Protestants would reject these categories, um, but we do see this as a very old distinction between um, what, what in Greek we would say is um, latria, which we would probably translate as worship, dulia, which is veneration, and hyperdulia, which is kind of top-level veneration. Um, and what, and, and this is a distinction we, we really see defined in the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the Second Council of Nicaea. Um, and, and the way it goes is that latria, genuine worship, as we would say in English, today's English, I should say, um, this was not always the case in previous, previous, you know, this has always been the case in English, but today it would be, that um, worship, latria, something that is reserved for God alone. I think I've got a sneeze here. I'm trying to mute me before I do, so I don't have to cut it out of the recording. Um, yeah, so that's, dulia veneration is something that can be given to the saints and hyperdulia would only be reserved um, for the Blessed Virgin Mary. I, and I'm not 100% sure if hyperdulia is defined in Nicaea too or not, now that I think about it, but it is something that we see um, that distinction made. And they would say that the council never really defines what veneration is other than that it is not worship, right? So it does get interpreted in certain ways as the generations go on, you know, so for um, if, if, you know, for Eastern Orthodox people today, um, veneration would include, um, you know, kissing the icon, um, that sort of thing. Uh, it's never defined in the council though. So it, it's kind of left wide open. And I think most Anglicans would agree that the saints do, do deserve some sort of respect, that there's, that there, that there's an honor due to the saints of the church and to the Blessed Virgin Mary, but we, we wouldn't always agree on what that looks like. Um, it is important to note that, that Nicaea too had a very mixed reception in the West. It was um, kind of considered in the East, the triumph of orthodoxy over the heretics. This is when orthodoxy finally gets, gets defined and there are no more ecumenical councils in the East. Uh, this is a this is a couple hundred years before the East and West do split. Before there's that schism between the East Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches, the East-West schism. But um, we do see, though, a mixed reception of Nicaea II in the West. And the main issue of, of controversy that Nicaea II was dealing with was what's sometimes called the iconoclast controversy. So there were some people that were going throughout the churches and destroying all the icons, all the images. And they were saying that the images were inherently idolatrous. The other side of that, the Icono uh, Dulia party, so the, the veneration of icons party, 
um, of images party, I should say. It's, it's probably better to translate icon in that context as images, because we have a very specific thing we think of um, when we talk about icons um, today, when we talk about a religious context, that was not necessarily the case um, in, in, in the eighth century. But um, their position was that, that images of the Lord Jesus are permitted because of the incarnation that to deny the permissibility of images and to say that an image of the Lord Jesus is a violation of the second commandment, which is what the iconoclasts were saying, is to have a faulty theology of the incarnation. You know, if Jesus was a man like you and I, he could have had his picture painted. He could have had his picture taken if they had photography back then. Therefore, images of him are, not, are, are, are a legitimate expression of the incarnation. Um, the council would go even further probably to say that you really ought to have images in some sort. And then from there, kind of the images of the saints and Mary go on from there. But the big thing, the big thing that, that is defined is that worship is due to God alone, but veneration can be done to the saints and to to the images as represent, theological representations of the Lord and the saints. Um, very mixed reception in the West. Part of that is a Latin Greek problem. The Latin translations were really, really bad for a very long time. Um, one of the more famous ones is a translation either done by or for Charlemagne that completely mixes up the categories to where that Latin translation actually says the opposite of what it says. <laughs> it, 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 it completely mixes up Latria and Dulia when they, when they bring it into the Latin. Um, so it had a very mixed reception in the West. By the time we get to the Middle Ages, this is, you know, now we're talking centuries that the East and West have been split um, you know, and the way that the, that the West was using images, a lot of folks in the East would also say was probably flirting with idolatry at the time. So, um, the reformers then react very strongly against, um, the, both the use of images and Nicaea too. Um, a good example of that from our own tradition is in the second book of homilies, the just slog that is the homily against the peril of idolatry. It's supposed to be a homily in three parts, but it's something like 150 pages in my, in my copy. It is not a homily. It is a theological essay slash rant. And when you read it, it's very clear that even though they refer to Nicaea to the seventh council in the in the in it that they don't understand it. I mean, they basically reject it, but it's very clear they don't understand the theological issues at all. It's just not on their radar. What is on their radar is the abuses that were happening in the Middle Ages that they were reacting against. Um, another one is John Calvin. If you if you've ever read the first book in in Calvin's Institutes. 
he goes on a on a tirade against the Seventh Ecumenical Council. He he says that he under that he's studied and and really understands all the councils, and but his reasoning for rejecting the Seventh again shows that he really didn't understand the theological issues at all. And probably the reason for that is because they were probably still dealing with those corrupted Latin translations. Um, and, and even in as, as, as recent of a book as um, now Pope Benedict, then Cardinal Ratzinger's um, book called, um, oh, not The Shape of the Liturgy, that's somebody else's book, but it's, it's basically his, his really good book on the liturgy. Um, Pope Benedict, um, then Cardinal Ratzinger says, okay, this, we have to deal with this because it's an ecumenical council, but we also have to admit that we have a really checkered history with this council. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good passage, um, re really good book, actually. I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but um, his, his approach to it was, was just absolutely beautiful. It was a, it was a gift for, uh, for one, one of uh, somebody, when I, when I performed their wedding, gave it to me as, as a gift, and it was, it was a great read. So that's the background for this issue. And so part of what goes in, not just the images issue, but also the invocation of saints, invocation of Mary and the saints. Can you legitimately pray to Mary and the saints? Um, in the, the Eastern Orthodox would say yes. The Roman Catholics would certainly say yes. Most Protestants would say no. Um, the, you do find within kind of the more, more Catholic end of the Anglican world, you do find a lot of people that, that do advocate for it. Um, and they basically are cribbing their reasoning straight from Roman Catholic apologetics on that, um, for better or for worse. I mean, you know, you can take a look at those and judge them for yourself. But the main, the main issue that I, I think it's important to point out a few things. We do know from um, Revelation, I think, 8, that the saints do pray for us. So we do know that we have the prayer, we have the prayers of the saints, that part of what they do in heaven is that they continue to pray for those, those of us still on earth. What that looks like, we do not know. Like we have no clue what that, what that means, what that looks like. But we do know that, they, that, that there is, um, it's not, okay, now that, I, now that I've, I've died, now that I've, I'm in heaven, you know, who cares what happens on earth? That's not, that's not the way it is for, for the saints. We know that from the picture that's painted in the book of Revelation. What we don't know is whether or not the saints could hear our prayers if we prayed to them. We have zero evidence in scripture that that is the case. Um, the, the way that that's, so it's, it's important to, to remember that only God is omniscient, right? So in terms of innate ability, you know, in terms of nature, only God is omniscient enough to hear, to hear our thoughts and hear our prayers. The devil does not have that ability. The saints do not have that ability in their nature. What you'll often hear is from, from folks that will advocate for the invocation of saints is that in some way, God kind of passes on the knowledge of, of what we are saying to them um, in that case. Again, we don't have any evidence of scripture that this would be the case. Um, we, we, so how this works, uh, how this would work, it, it, you know, there's a big question mark on that if, if, it, if it did work, because we don't know that it does. 
it is certain that kind of in a popular level superstition, there are a lot of people that treat the saints in a similar way to they were to the way they were being done in the Middle Ages. Basically, God is really mad because he's really powerful and he's the judge. Um, certainly, we don't want to go talk to God the Father. He's way too mad. Jesus is probably pretty mad. It's probably better to go talk to his mom so that so that she can soften him up. Or let's go talk to Saint so and so because I don't really want to bother the big guy. You know that that sort of, that sort of thing. That that that's that's the mentality that that persists on a popular level to this day. Now there is no Roman Catholic theologian that would advocate any of that, right? I mean, I mean that is that is the kind of thing they would they would definitely um, consider to be a superstitious approach to the saints. Um, but it's something that is very much a danger for that practice of invocation. You know, we're here in San Antonio. What do people do in San Antonio when they want to sell, sell their house? They go buy a statue of St. Joseph and they bury him upside down, right? What do people do when they need, when they've lost their keys? They go say a prayer to St. Anthony, you know? <laughs> That's, and, and these are, and, and let's, let's, be, let's be perfectly frank, you know, again, with all due respect to our friends and neighbors, those are very much superstitious practices. You know, those, even, even if we're going to grant kind of a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox approach to invocation of the saints, those are still superstitious practices, right? Um, so we definitely don't want to fall into that. Um, but when, when, when you hear Protestants saying that Catholics or Orthodox are worshiping Mary and the saints, um, that's not true. You know, pr prayer does not necessarily equate to worship. Now, I would be very hard-pressed to find any biblical examples of prayer that is legitimate prayer that's not worship. That said, the way that it's approached um, by the Roman Catholic Church, by the Eastern Orthodox, by Anglo-Catholics, is the reason goes something like this. If I can ask my friend or my mother or my neighbor to pray for me here on earth, surely I can ask someone who's before the throne of God to pray for me here on earth too. You know, and, and you know, there's there's some decent reasoning to that. Okay, you know, if Saint Anthony could hear me, then sure, asking Saint Anthony to pray for me is fine. But we don't know that he can even hear you. I mean, that, that's that's really that's really the issue, and it's really easy to slip into the superstitions. Not that not that everybody does. You know, that's certainly not something I'm going to be saying. But you know, th those are kind of the danger marks with that. I would say so. You know, if if, if you're kind of from a pro a, a Protestant background, um, don't think that saying a Hail Mary is an idolatrous prayer. It it isn't necessarily it can be used such but it's not necessarily so but um, if you're kind of coming from a roman catholic or eastern orthodox perspective you might want to examine some of those assumptions regarding how the saints can interact with us you know here today because we just don't know so what what's the conclusion with that well here, here's the conclusion with that um at all saints we are never going to be in, invoking the saints publicly. It's just never going to happen. Um, it's not part of our liturgy. Um, it's, it's not part of our approved liturgy. And we don't 
know that it does anything. <laughs> um, I do not do that privately, but I guarantee you there's going to be folks at All Saints that do. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're, we're, there's, I, I can picture some in my head and that's okay. You know, I, I'm not going to rebuke them for that. I'm not going to argue with them for that. Um, but the, the, key, the key important part of the, of the view of the reformers is that we do have direct access to God. And you don't need your priest to go through your priest to, to go to God. We, have, we certainly have a role in word and sacrament that is something that you know is is not a role for the laity but um you know i am not i am not your mediator between you and god now do i pray for you um i should <laughs> you know if i'm not I'm, I'm not doing my job um but you do not need to go through me to get to god you don't need to go through mary to get to jesus you don't need to go through the saints to get to, to get to the lord either we have direct access and that's the, and that's the important part now and I and I would say that that again, this is this is not an area where you're going to find Roman Catholic, Greek, Orthodox um, theologians disagreeing, um, but they're going to they're going to say that you know there are, there are, there are other benefits um, to that practice, um, and 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 I would just question whether or not that's true, um, as would you know. You know, our English reformers, many of them would have considered it idolatrous, but, but again, they're reacting to those problems going on in the Middle Ages. Um, these things are very much a, there, there's reasons why they're considering it idolatrous. Um, you typically don't find too many Anglicans today considering idolatrous. We just might not consider it to be best practice. And some do. So that's that. Okay, quite, quite questions, questions, comments on um, on any of any of the above or anything that we've talked about in the last two weeks. I think I see a hand. T Tina, is that a hand? Yes. Well, I, I guess I'm looking at the passage in Revelation 8. And I guess my question is, is how do we know that the prayers of the saints that they're talking about are saints that are actually in heaven? Oh, okay. Um, I would say the greater context because we have, we have, and you know, I, I may be getting my addresses wrong on this, um, but the greater context, we are, we are in the throne room scene in heaven, right? Right. And um, we do, we do see the martyrs um, involved in this scene. So I, I would say that, that just because it says saints, obviously it's not necessarily talking about those that have died and, and gone to heaven. I mean, that's mm -hmm. obvious, you know, most of the time when the New Testament says saints, that's not what it's talking about. But, but I do think that, that within those first, I don't know, like Revelation four through eight ish, they're mm -hmm. about, um, I, I, I do think the picture that's painted does indicate that those who have gone before continue in their ministry of prayer. Mm. Um, I yeah, don't think so. I've ever read it that way, so, <laughs> but I guess it's just probably my background going to it. I, I don't know. I, I guess I would have thought that that could have been either current saints, or it could also be like the prayers of the saints over time that it, that, you know, were being offered at that, in that moment. But I mean, I guess, you know, again, you, I think we read with our own context and ideas. I'm, I'm reading verse three and four. 
and four is what I'm assuming you're talking about, right? uh, chapter eight. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking through now because I wanted to see some of the, the, the fuller picture. But yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. So, and another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given to him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Right. Yeah. And so in that in that that passage in of itself certainly doesn't isn't a silver bullet that that it's those who who are um, before the throne or the, the, those that have gone before. Mm -hmm. um, we, we certainly do see in chapter four, we have the 24 elders um, who most folks would would agree are the the patriarchs and the apostles um, you know offering worship um, we, we we do see in the great in the part of the great multitude um, you know and, and there does seem to be in the great multitude um, again it doesn't necessarily have to be this I mean especially kind of more from a, a dispensationalist perspective they might see at the end of the chapter those folks have been raptured um, but you know uh, assuming that these are martyrs you know that they are they are offering some sort of ministry of, 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 of prayer and worship um, so yeah I mean I, I guess I guess you're right in, in the respect that it's there's not a silver bullet passage about that um, but it does it does seem to me that there is there is a there's not a lack of concern for what's going on on earth i think that's that's the point you know i mean when we see the the greater picture of four through eight and, and beyond that there's not a lack of concern it's it's not a you know be, because there's not an this isn't an escape issue what's going on on earth is still part of salvation history and when, um, you know, we, we, I don't know if we talked about this in previous classes, but I think we did when we're talking about burial of the dead. Um, you know, those in heaven are awaiting the final resurrection, which is something that happens on earth as well. So, so it does seem that there's a, there is a, an anticipation of some sort. Um, and, and, and so I, I guess maybe I just assumed that that Revelation 8 passage included those folks and maybe maybe i need to question my assumption on that but uh yeah anyway <laughs> so. and i'm sorry i'm not meaning to say anything i just was questioning it because i had never not thought about it that way before <laughs> well it is it is good it is good to uh like i said it, it's we, we we all need our assumptions questioned including including me so <laughs> yeah yeah okay any any uh any any other any other questions, comments for uh, from these last couple of weeks here? All right, well, we are going to um, not meet for the next two weeks. So um, our next our next one will be, let me pull up my calendar over here real quick. Okay, so we will not meet on, on the 23rd or the 30th. Um, 
And the sixth is a question mark because the sixth is the Feast of the Epiphany. So I might have something at church that evening, but I might not. Um, well, we might just do a, a broadcast earlier in the day or something like that. So um, definitely we will meet on the 13th. Um, it'll be a question mark if we, if on the 6th or not. So, all right. Well, God bless you all. And I hope everybody has a Merry Christmas. Thank mm -hmm. you.